0: On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we debrief from our whirlwind conference schedule last week, discuss recent questions about informed consent and discharge in the company of a responsible adult. And in our focus segment, we interview Bill Prentice, Chief Executive Officer for ASCA, the National Association for ASCs.
1: Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com.
0: Welcome to episode 140 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for October 3rd, 2021. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. John is recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. He is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues.
1: Well, we are back home after a whirlwind trip. A little more whirlwind <laughs> for me because I was in Texas the week before. Yes. But, uh, but uh, you and I uh, went whirlwind off.
0: enough. I, I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> I think a week ago, to, we're recording on a
1: Sunday. I think it was a week yeah. ago. Uh, today <laughs> we headed off to Ohio. Yep. Uh, in Ohio for two days, and then we made that long eight and a half hour drive from Ohio to mm-hmm. New York. Uh, but we had a lot of fun. I yeah. I would say. Uh, it was great to be back with all of our friends in the industry, and uh, get to see a lot of our our listeners. We met a lot of our our listeners mm-hmm. out there also. And yeah, we uh, we had to man booths at both the Ohio and New York, and in Ohio we had four of us, mm-hmm. and in New York we had eight of us. So yes, we were a heavy bunch. presence in both states. It was <laughs> a lot of fun though. Um, got to meet a lot of. Um, of people that we haven't seen in almost two years now, actually, mm-hmm. and la- I think the last uh, state association conference we went to was the Ohio one in uh, the fall of uh, 2019.
0: Mm, I think so? Hard
1: to believe, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's been quite a while.
1: Yeah, so we have got a lot of material to work with, don't we? We did. Uh, I don't know about eight interviews during that time frame between mm-hmm. the three different conferences and uh we'll start uh we're, we're gonna get the texas association we're gonna have three special episodes one for texas one for ohio one for new york mm-hmm. and then a number of the interviews that we did uh we'll be able to use for our national audience too mm-hmm. so uh so you're gonna be busy editing and i'm gonna be yep. busy putting things together and uh so expect a, a whole bunch of uh Of episodes coming out. I know it's been a little bit slow. Um, We did have have a lot of fun. We did record uh, a live episode from Ohio with Mm Judy and And uh, Mike, Mike, uh, which was nice. I think that was about a week ago.
0: Yep, he's our our newest employee, right? Right,
1: and uh, and and Judy's husband. Yes. So, uh, and also uh, quite a bit of knowledge on OSHA. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's uh, yet another thing that we've all uh, been having to learn about. Uh, we've also uh, just finished up a whole bunch of surveys. I should say two surveys, but it mm-hmm. seems like a whole bunch. And yes. The, both for your clients. You you mm-hmm. you uh, you've been on the spot lately. One was yep. for uh, Joint Commission, and one was for Triple Eight C. Mm-hmm. Um, And then the other issues that we're dealing with right now are that vaccine mandate in New York State. Those of you that are not from New York, uh, I mean, we all know about the federal mandate that that the Biden administration has announced but has not been uh, put out yet. But in New York State... Uh, on Wednesday of this coming week, week October seventh, twenty twenty one, New York is requiring all healthcare providers in the state of New York to uh, have all of their employees vaccinated, with uh, very small exceptions. In other words, uh, like a health Mm-hmm. exemption.
0: Yeah, uh, but very few. Very few.
1: We've been processing some of these with our employee, mm-hmm. with our uh, centers. Like One came through which just said that uh, it was a pregnancy exemption, and we couldn't process that because it didn't indicate really anything more than she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, New York is getting very strict about it, and, and uh, they've gone so far as to say that you have to be terminated if you uh, don't get vaccinated by mm-hmm. the 7th. And uh, you're not going to be eligible for unemployment. So it's a pretty uh, pretty strict mandate. And there is, uh, in New York right now, as we speak, a hold on – so basically what happened is that there was no religious uh, exemption. Um, The court Mm -hmm. has determined that they're going to uh, stop – the Department of Health from enforcing the exclusion of that or the, until such time as the court has a chance to be able to review it. So that yeah. won't happen for another couple of weeks. Uh, so anyway, a uh, lot going on in New York. And, of course, as New York goes, you know, sometimes the rest of the country goes. So we have mm-hmm. to keep a very close eye on that. The other thing that I'm concerned about, I've, I've been listening to quite a bit of uh, news about the uh, supply chain. We mentioned this briefly, I think, last week. Well, we do have to keep a very close eye on what's going on with our supply chain. There's concerns that anything that comes from China in a shipping container – uh, might be disrupted uh, as a result of the backups at the, the various ports in the United States. So uh, make sure you uh, order frequently. Uh, unfortunately, that means you're going to have to stock up those supply closets of yours and be prepared, especially when we go into the fourth quarter when, you know, the, the Christmas holidays increase the, in the amount of shipments that are are going across, uh, you know, in the, the various shipping companies. So be very careful about that. Let's uh, talk about some recent news. So we have an update on opiate, opioids.
0: (laughs) So the AMA released a report in September that showed that there has been a 44.4 percent decrease in opiate prescriptions, um, and also um, an increase in physicians using the prescription drug monitoring programs that help them to avoid, you know, multiple prescriptions for one patient. They're checking to see if there are prescriptions out there from other doctors, you know, the, the doctor shopping or, or whatever that can happen, but. Unfortunately, the death rate from overdoses is still continuing to rise. So,
1: did, did they talk about? I mean, I, I, that might be related to the pandemic and overall I, depression, or
0: that definitely the increased. That increased a lot because of, yes, the depression, the isolation. Yeah. Um, but I think I'm, I'm hoping that it's also just that long tail. I mean, once somebody's addicted, yeah. you know, it's they're, they're going to be able to go on the street and, and get things to satisfy their addiction. So yeah. hopefully with this decrease in the prescriptions, you know, we'll be seeing in the years to come some decrease in, in the addictions. And they're just talking about how to address that, you know, doing more at the outset, like some of the the products that we had seen when we go to the conferences, um, just, you know, having a multimodal um, approach to pain relief. And I just, as I was reading through this, I was thinking about some of the other news that I've seen where it's almost like sometimes we go to the extreme. It's such a hard balancing act, but there are, people that I read about one family suing the doctor because their their loved one was in such extreme pain and the doctor didn't want to continue to write medication um, and the, the person actually a, took their yeah. life because they were in such extreme pain yeah. so it, it's just such a, a tough issue but I think the more you know that people can just be careful with you know prescribing and, and using other you know other ways of dealing with the pain when they can so it looks like they're headed in the right direction I'm just hoping that you know, we'll see the result of that. Uh,
1: and an in interesting news, uh, Sue, you didn't pick this up because uh, you hadn't been dealing with it at least recently. No. But uh, I saw an article of, uh, from the American Dental Association. Uh, and the only reason I picked it up is because uh, I've been working with a center uh, in New York that wants to add dental procedures. But the state has come back and said, well, these are not surgical procedures. And, of course, we argued that they are. Um, but the issue continues to be the lack of CPT codes mm-hmm. for dental procedures. So in the September 22nd, 2021 edition of the ADA News, that's the News of the American Dental Association, in an article written by Jennifer Garvin, uh, she noted that organizations uh, believe that if they were to identify a coding solution for dental surgeries in hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers, that could improve access to uh, dental surgery for at-risk populations. So what happened is the ADA and several groups of dentistry organizations are asking the CMS, uh, to improve patient a- access to dental procedures in hospitals and surgery centers. They're requesting that CMS work to identify a coding solution to the current hospital and ambulatory surgical center billing limitations, which have significantly restricted Medicare and Medicaid patient access to covered dental and outpatient procedures. I should point that it's it's more than that too, because really, other third-party insurance companies fo- tend to follow the requirements or the CPT codes mm-hmm. uh, when they come up with their rates uh, that CMS is assigned. Established. And they noted that despite advances in preventive care and an overall reduction in untreated tooth decay, significant oral health disparities exist, including racial and ethnic disparities and geographic disparities. They noted that Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries with special needs and disabilities and the frail elderly disproportionately suffer from dental caries, and and those patients aren't treated. Uh, through dental surgical intervention. This disease can result in emergency department visits and life-threatening infection and hospital admission. Here's the problem is that right now the uh, CPT methodology only has one CPT assigned for dental surgery. And those of you that are familiar uh, with dental surgery in the ASC know that that code is CPT41899. By the way, CPT is a uh, that is a con- current procedural tech terminology and it's a copyright of the American Medical Association. So, and the problem in the 2020 ambulatory uh, payment classification rate, it's only $203. Now, I haven't looked up to see what it is this year, Mm -hmm. but suffice to say that given the procedure, given the amount of time, the equipment that goes into it, that really is insufficient. Most surgery centers tend to be doing these procedures really more as as a public service, especially to the population that they're serving. The ADA noted that the reimbursement level is grossly under the appropriate cost for complex dental surgery cases and significantly less than national average de- geometric mean cost of the procedure being billed to Medicare and the groups wrote that the current ambulatory payment classification rate does not recognize or cover a facility's time expense professional surgical services anesthesia services or equipment costs and they concluded in that letter uh, that they wanted to urge CMS to help solve these issues by espe- establishing a uh, uh, healthcare common procedural coding system level two code, in other words, a HCPCS code. So let's keep an eye on that. See if that mm-hmm. if that moves somewhere. That could be very uh, would be another procedure that we could be doing in surgery centers that might uh, might be restricted right now because of the poor reimbursement. Sue, we've also had some recent experiences, haven't we? Let's talk about. It. I'm going to have you read the the regs, uh, Sue. Sure. So so the first thing is informed consent. Uh, so a couple times during uh, these conferences, actually both conferences, I had questions asked of me uh, by attendees just, you know, as they were walking by and they knew that we're kind of experts in this area. And they, they asked about, well, one of the, the individuals said, can a nurse get informed consent? And of course, uh, both you and I kind of bristled a little bit at that because, I, you know, the next thing I said, what do you mean uh-huh. get informed consent? Uh, so let's As we delve into that issue, let's, as we always try to do on the podcast, is start with the Medicare regulations. So, Sue, this is in 416.50E. Do you want to read that?
0: Sure. The standard um, exercise of rights and respect for property in person. The person has the right to the following. To be fully informed about a treatment or procedure and the expected outcome before it is performed.
1: So that is, of course, the definition of informed consent. Um, And the interpretive guidelines for that particular area, which is, again, 416.50E13, is, and let's just alternate on this, as is the case for advanced directives, the patient has the right to make an informed decision regarding his or her care in the ASC.
0: The right to make informed decisions means that the patient or patient's representative or surrogate is given the information needed in order to make informed decisions regarding his or her care
1: and the right to make informed decisions regarding care presumes that the patient has been provided information about his or her health status diagnosis and prognosis. I'm just going to stop for a second there and point out that the best way to get that information is prior to the procedure, mm-hmm. providing it on the day of the surgery really isn't very so that, reasonable. Yeah.
0: And furthermore, it includes the patient's participation in the development of their plan of care, including providing consent to or refusal of medical and sur- or surgical interventions and in planning for care after discharge from the ASC.
1: And another parenthetical note, it's hard to do that when they're actually showed up on the day of surgery to get it. So again, this uh, bullet here kind of presumes that that consent was was given prior to the procedure. (laughs) The patient or the patient's representative or surrogate should receive adequate information provided in a manner that the patient or the patient's representative or surrogate can understand to assure that the patient can effectively exercise the right to make informed decisions.
0: The ASC must utilize an informed consent process that assures patients or their representatives or surrogates are given the information and disclosures needed to make an informed decision about whether to consent to a surgical procedure in the ASC.
1: And the primary purpose of the informed consent process in the ASC is to assure that the patient or the patient's representative or surrogate is provided information necessary to enable him or her to evaluate the proposed surgery before agreeing to that surgery.
0: Typically, this information would include potential short- and longer-term risks and benefits to the patient of the proposed intervention, including the likelihood of each, based on the available clinical evidence, as informed by the responsible physician's professional judgment.
1: Informed consent must be obtained and the informed consent form must be signed by the patient or, as appropriate, the patient's representative and placed in the patient's medical record prior to surgery.
0: It would be acceptable if the ASC required the physician or physicians who perform the procedures in the ASC to obtain the, the patient's informed consent outside of the ASC prior to the date of the surgery, as this might allow more time for discussion between the patient and the physician than what would be feasible on the date of surgery, as you mentioned."
1: In such cases, in such cases, the physician must follow the ASC's informed consent process. And in all cases, the ASC must ensure that the patient's informed consent is secured prior to the start of the surgical procedure and that this consent is documented in the patient's medical records. So a bunch of takeaways from this. First of all, Sue, this isn't the first time this has come up. We've had mm-hmm. issues in the past, and I know we've talked about them. I think the first thing that we need to note is that informed consent is not a document. It's a process. It is documented with a consent form, but Mm -hmm. the actual informed consent is much more than that document. It's that whole discussion that the physician has with the patient.
0: And as for when you need to get the consent signed, don't do it at the front desk, um, ideally in the doctor's office ahead right. of time if you can.
1: Yeah, so I mean this is uh, something that I've seen uh, not infrequently. I mean it, but I, I've seen uh, patients at registration be handed a series of documents, including the informed consent, and being asked, uh, you know, by the uh, receptionist in some cases to sign it. Um, so the specific question, we know that's not ideal. The ideal situation is really that the consent is signed in the physician's office, and a copy of that consent is then sent over to the surgery center, mm-hmm. and then included in the medical record. So the the question that was asked to me specifically by uh, by an attendee at one of the conferences was, "Can a nurse get informed consent?" So the the pure answer to that is no. I mean the. Patient has to have a conversation with the physician. The, the physician is the one that gets the informed consent. Now, the nurse may be able to get the patient to sign uh, the informed consent, documenting what the physician had already done. And that's the critical thing. So, uh, we have to be very careful about the way we discuss. So, Sue, mm-hmm. uh, in that conversation, I can't, maybe you weren't with me. I can't remember who was with me at the time. But, you know, what is the ideal situation? What is the ideal conversation? So, Um, so the ideal way that I would approach it, and Sue, feel free to chime in if, uh, you know, because I know you've had to do this in the past, but let's, in general, this is the conversation. Mrs. Smith, you know, I have in front of me a, a document that uh, we would like to have you sign. Now, it documents the conversation that you have previously had with your physician. And, uh, it, and in that conversation, he discussed with, he or she discussed with you, um, you know, what the risks and rewards of the surgery, what alternatives were, and what would happen during the procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, please read through this document and make sure that it that it is uh, that you agree with the contents and that, indeed, you've been uh, given all of this information previously. Uh-huh. The important thing about that is that if the patient has any questions about it, the nurse really can't answer, answer them and yeah. should not answer. Mm-hmm. Them. It's not within your scope of service. I'm looking mm-hmm. at Sue, and you can't see me looking at Sue, but, <laughs> but it's not within your scope of service. And yeah. as intelligent and as fantastic as nurses are, they don't have the ability Uh, nor the responsibility, since Mm -hmm. they're not doing the procedure on the patient, uh, to be able to uh, get that informed consent from the patient. So you have to be very careful about the way you word that. I've seen situations where even the nurse has read the informed consent to the patient.
0: And asked if they had any questions. Right. it's That's just not appropriate. It's
1: just the wrong way. If you're going to ask them if they have any questions, you should say, mm-hmm. if you have any questions, I'd be glad to get the physician here. Mm-hmm. Now, we've also run into situations over time where the patient has, um, Uh, been in the operating room when that consent Mm -hmm. has been obtained. And that is a really uh, poor way of doing things because at that point it's kind of hard for the patient to change their mind. Mm -hmm. And you really need to give them that opportunity to change their mind when they're not under stress, when they're Mm -hmm. not um, you know, literally about to be hooked up to all of this equipment. So,
0: yeah, even uh, the nurse reading it and saying, "Do you have any questions?" I'll get the doctor. I mean, it's better than not offering to get the doctor. But if you're, right. you don't want them to feel pressure not to inconvenience somebody. Right. You know, so so yeah, it's ideal to do it when the doctor is there, right, at, at their exactly. office or something.
1: And then the second issue that's been coming up lately, quite a bit actually, Sue, is discharge planning. And I'm speaking specifically regarding the requirement that a patient have a responsible adult with them. So, again, let's go to the conditions for coverage and the interpretive guidelines. And this comes up in uh, Section 416.52C, which is the standard for discharge. Go ahead, Sue.
0: The ASC must ensure all patients are discharged in the company of a responsible adult, except those patients exempted by the attending physician.
1: And there are interpretive guidelines that have been published associated with this, and this is what the interpretive guidelines say. Unless the physician who is responsible for the patient's care in the ASC has exempted the patient the ASC may not discharge any patient who is not accompanied by a responsible adult who will go with the patient after discharge. ASCs would be well advised to develop policies that address what criteria a a physician should consider when deciding a patient does not need to be discharged in the company of a responsible adult. And I have bolded this section in our notes here, but it's not bolded in there, but it is very important. Exemptions must be specific to individual patients, not blanket exemptions to a whole class of patients. Mm-hmm. In other words, every single situation needs to be looked at upon mm-hmm. it, on its own merits and that – That physician needs to, in writing, uh, specifically exempt that patient with a reason as to why they're exempting that patient. We had a situation recently where a patient was actually, um, unfortunately, this is not unusual. um, But we've had situations where the patient has come in and said, yeah, I have a responsible adult that's coming. And then it turns out that Mm -hmm. there is no responsible adult. In other words, the patient kind of has lied to us. And then you're kind of stuck in this situation. What do you do? Do you keep calling around until they find somebody? Do you force the patient to find somebody to take them home? Um, So we had one recent situation where it took so long to figure out what to do that the patient, you know, was there in the surgery center for three hours. At that point, the patient really had fully recovered, mm-hmm. and it was at that point appropriate for the uh, the doctor to sign a discharge order or sign a, a note saying that they can be discharged to, in this case, they were discharged to a uh, uh, car service that would assure that the patient would be taken right to the door of the patient's apartment. Mm-hmm. So that, that's not ideal, and that's something that could get you into trouble. Uh, but if you, if you find yourself in a situation that there is no responsible adult, there is no way for this patient to go home under these regulations. Without somebody taking them to the door, so I, it, you're well advised to uh, have an agreement with a car service that, uh, and and in that car service agreement, it states that the pay the uh, the car service is responsible for delivering patient the patient right to the door. And of course, mm-hmm. you're going to pay more for that, or the patient will pay more for it. I'm, yeah, you know, this is one of those situations where you might have to pay for this if the patient can't pay or insurance doesn't cover the cost of it. Mm-hmm. I. I I look at this, Sue, not just as a regulatory issue, though. I mean, we've discussed the whole regulatory side of it, but it's also a legal issue. I know you Mm -hmm. follow legal issues a little bit yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, don't you think that this is something that we are, we should be concerned about from what happens if that patient falls? What happens mm-hmm. if, uh, I, I mean, I've had situations where they say, well, I'll just take public transport. I mean, mm-hmm. can you imagine what would happen if that patient were to be on a train or, uh, you know, some other public transport? Yeah, they and-
0: fall or they end up in the wrong place because they're not quite. Mentally fully recovered or, yeah, it's just not, you just can't feel safe about it. But it is a tough situation because there are people that That don't have adults that they can count on. So it can be quite difficult. And I know you've had the uncomfortable situation that you've had to let people know that really if somebody says they've got somebody in the car and they get out there and they hop behind the wheel yeah. and they start driving that you may have to call the police if you feel that they're not safe to be driving.
1: Yeah, that happened uh, once when I was an administrator about 20 years ago that uh, uh, it was kind of unbelievable if you think about it. A patient came in for cataract surgery, had the surgery done, uh, said that his wife, who was accompanying him, would drive them home. The, the staff was a little suspicious because the, uh, shall we say, that the wife seemed less Able to see than the do- than the patient was, <laughs> and uh, so you know they did everything right. They took the patient to the car. Um, the the uh, wife got in on the driver's side. The patient got in on the uh, the passenger's side, and they drove off. and And the um, kind of not very well though, <laughs> and uh, they got and and the the nurse stood there watching, mm-hmm. and you know that they drove. You Know a short distance uh-huh. where they thought that the nurse was no longer watching, uh, stopped the car and they switched drivers. You know, she had the license number, she was pretty uh, smart about this, and she got the license number and called the police immediately. I don't know, yeah. we don't know and never will know what happened there, but at least we did our due diligence. So, uh, if you do run into a situation where somebody does violate the rules, there, you know, it goes against medical advice, you know, and that's the ties uh, uh, situation, uh, you really do need to call the police. Uh-huh. So that situation seems to be coming up a lot more recently. Yeah. Uh, and another situation so that we had which is uh, along these lines is that uh, in a high-rise uh, ambulatory surgery center d- due to COVID and and again things were been even more complicated with COVID. Yeah. Uh, but, but during COVID um uh, the the staff was discharging the patient to the lobby on the eighth floor in this particular place, which meant that the, – and then assuming that the patient's family would take them mm-hmm. from there. But that was no – they weren't assured of that. And yeah. that was a very dangerous situation. Just, mm-hmm. I, you know, a number of times over my my life I remember uh, patients falling in, you know, elevators or mm-hmm. getting off the elevator or in the parking lot. It does yeah, seem to be that, you know, because they they haven't really ambulated that far – Mm-hmm. until they get outside mm-hmm. that that's when you really know if you've got a problem. Yeah. So I, I think it's enough said there. So, uh, that's it for our news and, uh, just kind of interesting information or interesting incidents that we found recently. So during the New York State Association conference, uh, Bill Prentice uh, joined me. Unfortunately, you weren't able to be there for that interview, no. but Bill and I talked about you know various things that are going on at the national level in the uh, in the ASC field, and it was a great uh, great interview as always. Bill has a lot of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very specific. He didn't want to talk about any numbers. Uh, you know, <laughs> from the CMS 2022 mm-hmm. rule. So uh, yeah. we are going to try to get a hold of Kara Newberry, who is the lawyer over there at the ASC Association, get a little bit more details. And he promised that uh, he would make her available. So let's take a short break. We'll come back and we'll uh, have an interview with Bill Prentice. Thank you for being a loyal listener of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. But did you know that you can enhance your experience and support the free podcast by becoming a patron member? Patron members have access to ASC Central, and add-on service at a very reasonable price. Patron members have access to our regular drop-in virtual meetings where you can discuss issues that you are dealing with in your ambulatory surgery center with the hosts and other members. Members also have access to valuable member resources, including a a document library with a growing list of resources, including the rules and regulations, guides to maintaining compliance, example policies and procedures, infection control resources, example risk assessments, example committee and governing body minutes, and over 60 disaster drill scenario kits and example forms and checklists. Members also have access to some of the virtual conferences that we have presented, including the Provider Credentialing Conference, which we offered in December 2020. It's a New World Conference in 2020, Infection Control in Service to Meet the Challenges of COVID-19, and the ASC Mandatory Education Program, which is a valuable resource for annual education for your staff. Membership helps to defray the costs of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you may visit ASCPodcast.com. To become a member, visit ASCPodcast.com. So this is John Gailey. I'm here uh, with uh, Bill Prentice, who's the um, chief executive officer of ASCA. (laughs) And Bill, it's great to see you. It's been two years. Can you believe it since you've been on the podcast?
2: It, it, it has been a long time, John. It's been a long two years, two years for everyone, and I'm very pleased to be able to look you in the eye and, and not be doing this by Zoom.
1: Yeah, we've seen each other a lot over the last year in, in, in Zoom, but uh, it, there's nothing like actually being in a real place. And we're recording uh, actually live from New York State Association meeting in Terrytown. so you just finished the, a great session. I, it was so funny. When I heard that you were going to be doing slides, I said, how was that even even possible. You are so anti-PowerPoint.
2: Uh, it was a challenge, I will tell you. And I, I had real trouble clicking through the slides, so I appreciate everyone's indulgence uh, with that. I was using uh, some great slides and some great data uh, collected by Kara Newberry, our Director of Government Affairs. And I don't think that will be the way I do things generally because it was it was stressful. But very much appreciate being at the New York meeting. I think that uh, John Valkenberg and the board at the association have done a great job in really pulling things together, and really look forward to working with you.
1: Thank you very much, and and thank you for so much for from ASCA. You know what you've done during the pandemic. You know I am so tired of talking about the pandemic, so I'm not going to ask you questions about the pandemic in general. Except I do want one way to start out, and you know we're going to talk to Karen Noberry about. About the details of the 2022 payment rule. And well, I'll ask you a couple things, but more legislative uh, from that standpoint. But can you kind of give us a feel for what it's like in Washington right now? Uh, what the attitude has the attitude changed in any way toward ASC since the pandemic or as a result of the pandemic?
2: Well, that's a great question, and I don't have a really firm answer to that that yet, and I think it's going to take a little bit of time to mm-hmm. shake out how the, the new administration, obviously we've only had the Biden administration since the end of January, um, about whether or not they learned anything about what ASCs were able sure. to do during the pandemic in terms of our ability to continue to provide care safely um, off the campus of an inpatient hospital, which may have been dealing with, uh, you know, an influx of of COVID patients, you know, I, I, have a, I have a sense that by the end of the last administration, they did have, I think, a better understanding of the role that ASEs could play mm-hmm. in providing care. And I think did appreciate the fact that having a decentralized healthcare system that has places where people could get care that are away from Uh, a site of service they may be dealing with Mm -hmm. an infectious disease like a pandemic was a good thing. Uh, And I'm hoping that that sense will carry forward into this administration and that they will understand the value of of having places like ASes to provide care to patients while inpatient hospitals may be dealing with other things.
1: Well, and and that's one of the things that we've been uh, talking about quite a bit is how yeah, hopefully, one lesson that we've learned, and we're sitting in New York, probably one of the states that's had one of the uh, most difficult times with um, with hospitalization. I mean, even before the pandemic, hospitals in New York, even. During non-flu seasons, we're running one hundred percent capacity. And we're hoping that the administration here in New York at least has learned the lesson that hospitals need to be available for those types of things uh, or for you know to be able to handle those influxes, those those uh, increases uh, during those times. And we're part of that solution.
2: Yeah. And and for example, uh, some people may be aware of the Hospital Without Walls program that was created on the fly, you know, in the first few months of the pandemic as a way for ASCs to provide care to patients that we otherwise wouldn't be regulated to see. Correct. And basically to serve as a hospital uh, be reimbursed as a hospital under Medicare as a way of of helping to deal with the pressures mm-hmm. in, in a given marketplace because hospitals being overrun with COVID patients. One of the things that that I pointed out to this new administration uh, in a Zoom call that Karen and I had uh, not too long ago was to, to not lose sight of the fact that this program, which I think was inartfully... Developed because mm-hmm. it was done on the fly to no to no one's fault, uh, but could have been done better and and allowed for ASCs to provide more care during the pandemic than mm-hmm. than they did. Now, some of the reasons that the program didn't work is because, quite honestly, the hospitals weren't willing to to, to move patients. Like oh, right. you know, even if a ASC signed up to be going a hospital without walls, that hospital was really resistant to trying to to mm-hmm. move patients out of their setting to somewhere else but that a program like that should be kept alive, um, Because not only God forbid could we have another pandemic or this pandemic could could worsen where we would need that in some places, but I think it'd be a great program uh, to deal with other emergencies on Mm -hmm. a more you know local or regional basis. You know, a flood, a hurricane, you know, where the hospital is consumed, and to have the ASC or other outpatient settings be available to see more patients really makes sense. So I, I hope that the Biden administration will will look to that program, look to improve it, and keep it you know applicable. Not just for something like a COVID-19 national health emergency, Mm -hmm. but for other like more localized or regional emergencies where a hospital is overwhelmed and patients need care.
1: Right. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about, to the best of my knowledge, uh, and certainly I'm not aware of any centers in New York that actually became a hospital during that time, or at least they're not members of the association. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about some of the successes? Or, I mean, you mentioned it briefly, but uh,
2: uh, did those centers find it a favorable experience? Uh, have they had any challenges with that? You know, I've only heard a- anecdotal yeah. evidence because it really wasn't widely used right. because it, it was very complicated and in the process of, of being licensed as a hospital and convincing yeah. your Medicare contractor to recognize right. you and such. We're now obviously dealing with the situation of ASEs that now want to convert back and what mm-hmm. that's going to be like. Um, I, I really think that it was – it for for a lot of reasons mostly for the positive because most markets mm-hmm. we did not see the hospital be overwhelmed once we kind of right. got our feet under us as a country i think in new york obviously early in the pandemic the mm-hmm. exception that uh, that it hasn't had to be you know used very often right Right.
1: So uh, during your session, you actually used the term stupid, which, you know, you're such a gentleman. I, I, was, I, I think people were actually shocked, but it was funny because we were talking about the copay uh, cap, uh, which is one of those provisions in the, uh, well, it's, it's actually been there for a while, but it's becoming more prominent. Talk a little bit about the cap and what you're going to try to do with that.
2: Sure. For, for those who don't know, um, there has been for a decade or more a cap. On the amount a beneficiary pays as a copay when mm-hmm. they get a procedure performed in the hospital, and I think it's a little over fourteen hundred dollars right now. So regardless right. of the cost of the procedure, the the beneficiary is receiving, she's not going to pay more than fourteen hundred dollars, roughly, right. um, as an out of pocket expenditure for that in there, a hospital. In a hospital, there right. is no cap on a copay in the asc setting Mm -hmm. now historically you know when the hospitals received that that copay cap um, ASCs really weren't performing expensive procedures Mm -hmm. where patients were likely to hit that cap we now are Mm -hmm. and so there are you know plenty of procedures that we're doing now total knees total hips spine procedures you know i could go on Mm -hmm. where the patient responsibility exceeds that fourteen hundred dollars what that means is is that we're in the perverse situation where a patient will choose to get care in a more expensive setting mm-hmm. with a more expensive total cost to us as a taxpayer because it's going to cost him or her less. Right. That is stupid. Right. <laughs> well said. There, so yeah. what we need to we need Congress to to pass a law to apply that copay cap to uh, Medicare beneficiaries in the AAC space. You know, one because it's it, the benefit only goes to the beneficiary in terms of saving mm-hmm. you know them money, um, but it also does not then this perverse disincentive mm-hmm. for a beneficiary to get into a, a care per, uh, provided in a setting that costs less to the Medicare program and less to the taxpayer.
1: Well, and that brings me to the, the next topic, which is uh, here we are sitting, um, I think the end of September right now, I have no Concept of time anymore, and uh, Congress right now, as we're recording this, is debating an infrastructure bill at three point five billion dollar, a trillion dollar, um, you know, substantial expansion of our uh, social network here, and uh, we have an important message to get across as we try to figure out how, as a nation, we try to figure out how to uh, finance all of these, uh, um, these, you know, in some cases like infrastructure, very necessary things. Uh, how are we doing in getting our message that we can, we can? Problem. Of course, part of it is that we're such a tiny part of that, but yeah. go talk about that a little
2: well, bit. Well, sure. Well, it, 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 that's a great point. We're actually um, hoping for our ASC legislation to be introduced this week mm-hmm. both the House and Senate. We've got great uh, bipartisan um, sponsors in both the House and Senate. And you're right, it is hard to get through the clutter in mm-hmm. the best of times. And right now, with uh, obviously a horribly divided country mm-hmm. politically uh and that that divide exists in congress as well where it's yeah. really hard to see members of congress reaching across the aisle and working together on issues mm-hmm. and dealing with these big issues in front of the country that like right now like the bipartisan infrastructure pact, is about a, billion uh, billion dollars or excuse me one trillion dollars one trillion dollars uh that they're trying to pass this week um, Mm -hmm. and then the three and a half trillion dollar um other package you know it's hard to get people's attention yeah but i think i am gratified to see that you know on our legislation we do have republicans and democrats introducing these bills in both houses together uh, and so i do hold out hope that you know we'll find an opportunity this year as some must piece of bill uh, mm-hmm. of legislation's moving through that we're going to get some or all of our provisions attached to that and mm-hmm. get them enacted into law. I
1: yeah. think one of the frustrations I've seen in the last 2 years too is how uh, the delays in getting the update done i think I, I don't remember when it hit i have talked to care talk to about what you know the uh the july 1st the, payment proposal okay. didn't come out until mid-july and of course last year yeah. came out in august but uh, do you think there's any chance that this isn't gonna come out any sooner in in november um
2: the, the light no the, i think the likelihood is it will come out out on or about november 1 i think i okay. think we did see some some you know, delays in the past two years for mm-hmm. a variety of reasons in terms of the timing of our things coming out which used to be Pretty much like clockwork, right, right. Um, but but I don't think there'll be a delay. I, I expect that we'll get it. You know, November one, and we'll have those those two months to hopefully you know get things in place to apply any new requirements and yeah. the new new payments. And obviously the um, ASCA's uh, Medicare rate calculator will be updated and available yeah. to members so that they can uh, make sure they're being reimbursed properly.
1: Well, and I just want to remind remind our listeners that last year we scheduled our finance and accounting seminar. Uh, in December, thinking that we would have plenty of time to review it. And it, during the seminar, that's when the payment rule came out. It was kind of a fascinating and uh, yeah. frustrating time. I, I'm, good, I'm, good I think I'm
2: optimistic it. that it'll come out on time. Wonderful. So, uh, talk
1: just briefly. As I said, we're going to have uh, Kara get into the real details uh, with us, but talk a little bit about what you felt um, were our successes this year. And of course, there were quite a bit of frustrations with the payment rule and what it means to us.
2: Yeah, I, I think if I look back in, at, at the entire year, I, I think that the most important thing that we did is I think we showed to policymakers, both at the federal and state level, mm-hmm. that ASCs could maintain safe, high quality environments, mm-hmm. even Absolutely. in the middle of a public health emergency, even dealing with a pandemic mm-hmm. that none of us have ever lived through Um like this. Um so I, I think we did ourselves very proud and and it wasn't you know the, obviously the association I think did a great job of mm-hmm. promoting this and making people aware of this but it was actually the ASCs themselves and the quality of care they provide and the way mm-hmm. that they they did it during the most trying of circumstances with all the you know regulatory pressures that were being applied they you know the suspension of Case elective care for a while the financial cost that only went up the additional mm-hmm. You know, burdens placed on in terms of social distancing and masking and mm-hmm. more terminal cleaning, all of those things. And the fact that we will provide so much care, and while we're not back to 100% yet, mm-hmm. and, and obviously there's still a lot of delayed care that we still need to, to see, we still need to sh- make sure those patients get into yeah. the facility and get that care because uh, we know that there's a health price to be paid by mm-hmm. delaying and postponing procedures. I think that was first and foremost the most important thing we did. And then secondly, I, I think that, you know, both with the prior administration, with this new administration, I think we are putting our best foot forward in terms of, of educating them on the value of the ASC model and and not just the great things we've done. But the additional great things we could be doing with on more and more patients, on more yeah. and more procedures, if we only have the opportunity. You know, y- y- as you may have heard me mentioned, if we could only, you know, we only do about 50% of the screening colonoscopies yeah. on Medicare beneficiaries, and we could be safely priced doing 95% of those. Mm-hmm. If we just took the top six, you know, most common GI codes that we do, mm-hmm. and we got that 95% Um, Migration of care to our setting On those six procedures alone We would save the Medicare program More than one and a half billion dollars a year Mm-hmm. So if you apply that to all the things that we could be doing, and particularly more expensive procedures than than just the, the colonoscopies, we could be saving the taxpayers billions and billions mm-hmm. of dollars each year. Dollars that could be used to provide you know other services that you know Medicare beneficiaries want. Mm-hmm. You know, we keep hearing about you know uh, Congress talking about adding dental and vision and hearing care to, to Medicare. Well. You know, if they could find a way to migrate more of our care to our setting, that's freeing up dollars that could be used to yeah. expand Medicare for those services. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I guess we can't avoid talking about vaccine mandates since that's the the new t- topic. Do you have a feel for uh, where we might be heading at a national level? Of course, uh, we're sitting in New York, and New York has a whole issue, but uh, we're actually talking to a national audience here. What what is? Uh, I'm not going to put you too much in the spot to make a prediction, but what is your feeling right now as to where we're heading?
2: Well, obviously, I think we're we're waiting for the the final rule to come out in mm-hmm. October, you know, we obviously all heard the announcement and the, the broad strokes of it, of applying it to all healthcare settings mm-hmm. and to businesses with a hundred or more employees, I, I you know, ask, it doesn't have a formal position mm-hmm. on it that the one thing I would, I, that my one thought on it is, is having a nat- whatever the requirement is having to be mm-hmm. national rather than local or state yeah. at least makes it consistent And I think, you know, I know we're all dealing with staffing shortages Mm -hmm. and the complications of mandates in specific industries, specific companies, specific states about, uh, vaccines and the impact that's playing. At least if it's national, I think it makes it fairer for all employers in terms of dealing with it. But I am hearing of the, you know, staff shortages that we're experiencing, the rising cost, um, of, of those, you know, staff expenses as a result. And that's something that I think we need this administration. We need this Congress to, to be paying attention to that, right. you know, a, a vaccine mandate, you know, may make sense, but it has consequences. Right. And there's consequences in terms of people who are going to refuse to, to, get the vaccine and then, you know, choose other employment. Um, you know, or get out of
1: healthcare. You or know get out out of, yeah. Part, and, right? and,
2: and, and look, we don't have enough physicians and nurses mm-hmm. to provide all the care this country needs right now. So if, 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 you know, Congress or the administration is going to take a position that's going to make that more difficult, Mm -hmm. they better also help us come up with a solution for that so that we have the healthcare workforce this country needs Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to provide the care that everyone wants. And that sounds
1: like a good way to end. As always, Bill, it's great to have you on the podcast. appreciate your time.
2: Well, thank you, John. It's a pleasure. Uh, I wish you well and look forward to working with you in 2022 and beyond. Absolutely.
0: In this segment, we discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCPodcast.com.
1: You know, for four years, we've been saying, uh, send your information to info at Mm ASCPodcast.com. And I think maybe I've received two emails in that amount of time. (laughs) So please, (laughs) please do this (laughs) because it is difficult for us to find all this information. (laughs) We have a lot going on right now. So we're going to talk about some of the things that are going on with the ASC podcast, but yep. uh, there are a couple of state association meetings also. Mm-hmm. So the Medical Director Conference is going to be October 9th. It's a Saturday from about 9 to 3. It's virtual. You can get more information at ASCPodcast.com. It's really the the industry's first opportunity for medical directors to get together and learn mm-hmm. things. I've been working on the slides, Sue, all day long because, yep. of course, I'm a procrastinator and it's uh, <laughs> five days or six days away from mm-hmm. us, so uh, hopefully you'll be Able to look at the slides uh, a couple hours before mm-hmm. the conference. Is, I know uh, goes I did on. start actually. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> uh, but I'm very excited about it. it could be it's going to be interesting to see how that uh, that goes. Um, it is a free service. It's a free conference for all of our clients as well as patrons of the AC podcast. And it's, it should be an exciting uh, event. And then we also have the ASC Conditions for Coverage Conference, which is October twenty second, 2021. It's one of these, what we call, Sue, a micro-conference where mm-hmm. we're we're taking one topic and spending a whole day yeah. talking about it. So I'm very excited about about that. I haven't done the slides actually. We're going to use a lot of the slides that we used from the uh, boot camps and just expand on them since we know we kind of rushed through them. Yeah, we've talked
0: about camp. this before, but we just there's never enough time never to cover it time. as well as you want to.
1: So Yeah, so uh, that Do should that. be very interesting.
0: And the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual education conference and trade show is November 4th and 5th. 2021 at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington.
1: And I'm sad to say, I was asked to speak at that conference, but um, they, uh, unfortunately, uh, I think they put it together kind of quick. Well, I mean, they've been planning it, but they weren't mm-hmm. sure that it was going to be in, in person. person. And I know there's been some challenges, so I, I could not make it uh, on the, the 4th and the 5th because of other arrangements. But uh, I have asked uh, if I could be asked back next mm-hmm. year, and they did not indicate that that's possible. Good. So
0: I would love to go to Washington.
1: The Pennsylvania Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual meeting is November eighth, twenty twenty one, at the Hershey Lodge in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Again, I'm not going to be there for that, and I know Sue, you wanted to be there for the Hershey's chocolate. I know <laughs> <laughs> anybody that hasn't checked into the Hershey Lodge, you know, unlike uh, the the DoubleTree, which gives you a cookie. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, at the uh, at the Hershey Lodge, they give you this big, uh, you know, Hershey's chocolate bar, which, of course, I can't eat. Uh, doesn't mean that I didn't eat it. The last time I got. but kind of dangerous.
0: The 2021 Ambulatory Surgery Centers Congress, November 8th and 9th, 2021, at the Area Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada.
1: And I'll be speaking at that conference Mm -hmm. along with a number of my dear friends out there. So looking forward to that. Looking... I can't believe I'm actually looking forward to going to Las Vegas. It's just you know, I, uh, it, it's just a, enough different than than, mm-hmm. than what's mm-hmm. been going on in the yeah. other areas. Not Las Vegas isn't exactly one of my favorite places, but heaven knows there's a lot of good food out there and a lot of things going on. So yep. I'm looking forward to that on November eighth and 9th. and and of course the ASC Director of Nursing Bootcamp, the November cohort, which is presented by the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, uh, will be November sixteenth through the nineteenth, presented virtually. For more information, visit at ASCPodcast.com. So the bootcamp is more than just that one event. And it is uh, recorded, so uh, people attend virtually and if mm-hmm. they miss any part of it, and that's yeah. often the case, they mm-hmm. can get a recording of it. They can see watch the recording for uh, six months to uh, about six months afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then there's also these weekly sessions that we have on Saturday mornings. Sue, we have had so much fun with those Saturday sessions. Mm-hmm. I know you, you missed it this week, yeah. but uh, it went on, by the way, Sue, for an hour and a half this week. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> oh or no, it's almost two hours. I yeah, would say yeah. we get a lot of great questions during these events, and uh, that is a service for uh, that's available to any of our patrons uh, as well as all the members of our boot camps. Mm-hmm. So. And then don't forget our credentialing workshop, which was recorded live on December 8th of last year, is available by going to the ASC podcast website at ascpodcast.com. So just another reminder to everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, which is also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource for those busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers resource include some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, drill kits and discounts and services and books and access to AEU uh, credits for CAS certified individuals. We should know that the patron program also includes those wonderful Saturday morning uh, drop-in sessions where we just talk about anything that our listeners want to talk about. Membership helps to defray the costs of producing the podcast, including research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, of course, you may visit ASC-Central.com or ASCPodcast.com. That's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again. And please consider becoming a patron, as I said, and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Sue Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Bornemann, Zach Caloraitis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels.
0: We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ascpodcast.com. This podcast has been an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development, All Rights Are Reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.